0: Let's uh, remain standing as we turn now our attention to his word. And we're going back to the beginning in Genesis. So if you would open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, or your phones or your devices, Genesis chapter 1. Beginning a new study through the first 11 chapters of Genesis today. And so, why not all chapters? Well, we might just have to do that, so we'll see. But at least the first 11. Genesis, uh, there's really two parts to it, we're gonna, as you'll see. Verses 1 through 11, and then, and then 12 through the rest of, of the book there. So we're going to cover the first part, and then we'll see where we go from there. But Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, hear the word of God this morning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This is the word of the living God. May He write its truths on our hearts today as we turn our worship to Him totally and completely this morning. So would you join me in prayer once again? Father, we worship You. You are the great God we just sang of, the one who is shrouded in mystery that we can't fathom and yet who has... Revealed yourself to us, Lord, through your holy word. And I pray that today as we begin this new study, Lord, that you would grant us grace to understand and, uh, and go deep into who you are. And Lord, in know, knowing who you are, we begin to understand, understand ourselves as well and we understand the world around us that you created. So I pray you'd help me today. You know my weaknesses and my struggles. And I pray, God, you'd help me to... encourage your people, Lord, to challenge your people in a way that would point our eyes where they belong, which is upon your Son, Jesus Christ. So by the power of your Holy Spirit, speak mightily and boldly today as we study your your Scriptures. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please have a seat. Genesis, in the beginning. And so we're going to Take 17 weeks to go through these first 11 chapters, and I want to start really today. That's really this is an introductory sermon, and so I'm going to spend a whole lot of time, kind of setting the stage for for what's ahead in our as far as how we understand what we're about to study. And as we uh, come to this this morning, so we'll we'll go through some introductory material on the first page of your notes. And then we're going to go through the first two verses in an expository way briefly as we come to the end. And those will be your three points this morning. But we're going to Genesis and why? Well, obviously it's so important in the Word of God, but why is it important? So I want to try to begin to frame this question. Why is it important to understand the book of Genesis? Genesis is the book... Of beginnings. Um, It's obviously uh, takes us all the way back to the beginning. The name Genesis comes from the Greek word of the the translation of of that word that we see here right in verse 1. The very first words of, of Scripture in the beginning, Bereshit, is the Hebrew word. It literally means in the beginning or origins, generation. It calls to our attention the The beginning or or the first step in a course of action. The chief thing, if you will, as the principal aspect or component of something. Literally, it just means the first. It's primary. It's first. And so we're speaking of Genesis. We're speaking of and looking into first things. We studied this at the beginning of last year a little bit as we looked at worldview. We'll be certainly touching on that again this morning. But we, we see right at the beginning in the first few chapters of Genesis, the, 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 the narrative of the whole Scripture, of all of the Bible, the, the story of redemption is set for us in the three words that you know well by now, right? Creation, fall, and redemption. And so we see the creation of the world, the, cre- the first things. We see that the first of sin come into the world, the fall. We see the first parents. We see judgment. We, we see salvation begin. We also see, and we're going to see as we go through this, last things. There's first things and there's last things. Why? Because all of these things that we're going to be studying as we go through, especially these first 11 chapters, point us actually to the very end of human history. Which is the biblical model anyway, right? The last shall be first. And So we'll see first things. We'll see last things. We'll understand that the creation points us to the new creation. The first Adam is going to point us to the last Adam. The creation of light, the the Word of God spoken, let there be light, will point us to the light of the Gospel of Jesus Christ that shines into the hearts of those who believe. And so we see the importance of Genesis in a few different ways. And I'm going to bring three of those ways this morning. First is this, that Genesis provides the foundational creation for the Israelites, which debunks the pagan myths of the surrounding nations. Understand this. Let's set this up. What's the context? Anytime you're going to understand the Bible, there's there's three keys to understanding it. It's context, context, context. Understand the context of what the Scripture is saying, and, and, and it helps us to know who was this originally written to. We're going to learn who wrote it in a little bit. Moses. It was written to the Israelites as they're about to enter the promised land. And so... Several centuries of history have already passed since creation. Moses begins to write this down. God is forming his people. God is forming this nation that he started with in in chapter 12 of Genesis where he called Abraham and, and, and the people are coming out of slavery from Egypt. They're about to enter into the promised land and there's some things they need to know. Especially in the light of the fact that the nations of the promised land that they're about to go into and that they have to conquer are dominated by, by theories of creation by a whole bunch of different deities. It's like every nation, every tribe it had their own creation narrative, their, their origin story. And usually this God took care of that, and this God took care of that, and this God took care of that and gave you this. And this is the, this is the worldview of what they're entering into. And so this Genesis provides God's people with a a God-centered theology of the one true God who is the sovereign creator, the one who brought all things into existence. And so it serves the people of God, the the Israelites, as an apologetic, really, to, to all of these Near East mythologies from the ancient world. It was It was God's way of letting his people know there's not a pantheon of gods. there's one God and only one, and that one God is the sovereign creator and Lord of everything that you see. And so what sets Genesis one through 11 apart from Genesis 12 through fifty is that the latter chapters are going to focus on the covenant. Of God of Israel, while the former reveal that the covenant God is the God of all the nations and that Israel had a purpose. They were meant to proclaim that message to the pagan world around them. So think about how Genesis 1 through 11 would have functioned in the life and the ministry of the people of Israel. It really sets the stage for their understanding of how they are to form themselves as a nation, as a people. Their worship is formed. Their lifestyle is formed. Everything is formed around the truth of who God is. Secondly, Genesis is foundational to the rest of the Bible. You cannot understand really anything else in the Bible without understanding the foundational truths that are laid down in Genesis, particularly chapters 1 through 3. Try to talk of salvation with no understanding of the fall, right? Without that, again, from the outset, we get the summary, creation, fall, redemption, from the very beginning. We get the promises of God in his covenants. We see the promised seed We see the promised land. We see the promised relationship. And all the way through Scripture, these are threads that go throughout every book of Scripture all the way to the end, even to the book of Revelation, which Genesis is the key to understanding even that. And so the Old Testament, the New Testament, all of it, from Genesis on, if we don't grasp Genesis, we're not going to understand the rest of it. So it's foundational for us understanding Genesis what we're reading when we read our Bibles and what we understand. And then thirdly, Genesis is foundational to a Christian worldview. So just as Israel desperately needed a foundation in the middle of their pagan surroundings, Christians, even in 2024, or how much more so in 2024, need to be reestablished in the midst of modern paganism. How? Genesis gives, really, the only coherent, sensible, sensical, unified answers to the basic questions of life. That's what we're talking about when we think about worldview. It's the basic questions of life. Why? Because it's true. It is truth itself as God explains to us who he is and what he's done. There's six basic worldview questions... When it comes to understanding how we understand everything. The six basic worldview questions. What, what is real? What's reality? Who am I? Where did I come from? Why am I here? What is what's the basis of my values? And what does my future hold? Those are the questions that everyone's asking. And there's a pantheon of answers out there that are offered that all lead to despair. Genesis holds the key to us understanding and answering these questions in a way that's coherent and, and, and makes sense and, and actually works because it's reality. There's other major worldviews out there that attempt to, right, to answer these questions. We're not going to get through every single one of them today, but just kind of to go over them, the major worldviews, you've got monotheism, where one God exists who's separate from but involved with the universe, certainly Christianity, is monotheistic. There's deism, which believes that God created this orderly universe to operate on its own. He, he's the great clockmaker and he wound it up and he let it go and he's away from it and apart from it. There's naturalism, which we'll talk a bit about today, that matter is all that exists and, and is best understood through science. Nihilism, where we must question objective truth and Positive values, existentialism: life has no objective meaning, and so significance is just individually created. Pantheism: everything that exists is God; matters just an illusion. There's something called they call the new consciousness, where reality is is it's beyond reason and can only be understood by altering the mind. Sounds fancy, right? Or then, then there's the personal combination of all of these. <laughs> there's the grocery store method where people want to approach life philosophically from just pick and choose what I can, from a little bit of Christianity, monotheism, a little bit of deism, a little bit of naturalism, and just mix it all together, and I have my, my philosophy of life. All of these have their understandings and ideas of origins, particularly the naturalistic, materialistic uh, philosophies have the origins, uh, theories of evolution, naturalistic evolution, where um, over eons of time and through random chance, life just evolves and mutates into higher life forms over time. And really what it comes down to is an attempt to explain origins with no God. Because they have to. If you don't believe in a God, you have to somehow figure out why is everything here. Years ago, the, they called him the Prince of Evolutionary Astronomers. His name was Harlow Shapley. He, he was a longtime head of the Harvard University Observatory. And many years ago, he pontificated that people today should rewrite the first verse of Genesis. According to him, it should be something like this. In the beginning, hydrogen created the heavens and the earth. And so what's happened is modern evolutionary astronomers and cosmologists and scientists have basically ruled out the idea of a personal, omnipotent, omniscient God as the creator of the universe. Well, I want to take a few minutes and walk through some series of how we understand these philosophical questions of life, the basic questions of life, and just compare a couple of these philosophies, the naturalistic, materialistic understanding, with Genesis. Let's look through this briefly. First question, what is real? What's the nature of reality? This is metaphysics for all the eggheads in the room. <laughs> You're right? Evolution, being naturalistic and materialistic, can answer this question of what is real in any meaningful way. There's there's no rationality to random chance. Everything is just matter in motion. And to come to anything that's going to be based in reasonable logic and and something that actually has a coherency to it to, to give a meaning and a significance to anything in life has to borrow from the Christian worldview to actually make sense and mean something to life. If, if atheistic evolutionists are honest with themselves, they will admit, and some have, there's no purpose to anything. There's nothing real. We, we, we can't even understand the nature of reality. What's the nature of being? and existence. This is... Again, eggheads, this is ontology. What exists? And it's epistemology. And how can we know about the existence of such a thing? The naturalist, the materialist would say, it's what I can see and touch. That's how I know what's in existence and what's real. And as far as being, the naturalist would say, well, we're just really well-organized collection of molecules. Wearing nice jeans. But that's who we are. And on comes Genesis. And in, I find this interesting. That right up from the outset, Genesis is not interested in trying to defend the existence of God. It asserts it from the beginning. It lays it out there. It's not coming as an apologetic for God. It just states the truth of God. In the beginning, God. Why? Why? Because God Himself is ultimate reality. Think about that. God Himself is existence Himself. Scripture says in Acts 17 that in Him we live and move and have our being. So how do we understand what is the nature of being and existence? Who who am I? I can understand that only as I understand God Himself. Thirdly, where did I come from? Where did everything come from? Cosmology, right? This is the nature of, of the world around us. Again, naturalistic, materialistic evolution. Random chance. And you got lucky and had favorable mutations. And you're human. That, that's, that's the explanation. Where did you come from? Random chance. Given enough time, it happens. What does Genesis teach? There's a creator. There's a designer. And there's also a governor. It's not deistic in the sense of He created and designed and left. He's involved in His creation. and Certainly that brings meaning to everything. Fourthly, why am I here? Anthropology. What is man? What's the nature of man? What am I? Who am I? Again, evolution naturalistically would tell us we're just matter in motion. We're product of the primordial soup. We are the highest form of positive mutations. Take that to the mirror for your daily affirmation, right? I am the incredible result of inexplicable random, yet positive mutations. And I'm good enough, and I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me, (laughs) Materialistic, naturalistic evolution... Hear me here. Want to know where we are? Why we are today where we are? Materialistic, naturalistic evolution lays the foundation, according to Bruce Watke, for trade in aborted body parts, genocide, and eugenic engineering. And that's just the beginning. Why? Because there's no value, no meaning to a bunch of molecules that came here by random chance Genesis comes and has a whole different story it tells us that man male and female is made in the image of god that all of life is sacred all of life has dignity being created as the very image of God, Whether in the womb or on the deathbed, human beings reflect the image of our Creator inherently. You are here to reflect His image. All the depth and the meaning behind that. How about epistemology? The nature of knowledge. How do we know what we know? Naturalistic evolution... Would, would, would bring us to, to involve some type of rationalism, reason, and logic, which gets thrown out when you begin to understand there is no reason or logic to the, to the meaning of things. Or how about empiricism? That's how you understand it. It's through the senses and through the experiences and, and through scientific observation, which by very definition is never repeatable. Genesis comes as divine revelation. How do we know what we know? What's the nature of knowledge? Well, if you are to know the most fundamental truths of the realities of life, if you're to answer these questions accurately, you can know them only because God Himself revealed them to you. God speaks, and in His words, He discloses what we need to know, and He does use words because words matter. My friend Matt Smith commenting on Genesis recently wrote these words. He said, words matter, yet we live in a culture where words are increasingly losing their meaning. Without the word of God as a validating point of reference, why wouldn't words lose their meaning? Job asked, where shall wisdom be found and where is the place of understanding? Certainly it's not found in our dictionaries where words can be changed based on the cultural and political winds of the day. After all, words from an evolutionary perspective are merely tools, easily changed or modified when the demand calls for it. For instance, politics is, is rarely a debate about ideas because words have lost their meaning. Think about that. Instead, it's a debate about power, where each candidate repeats emotional slogans in an attempt to receive a favored response from an echo chamber of shared understandings and values. Politically correct speech reinforces this utilitarian sense regarding words. And nowhere is it more apparent than in debates about words like marriage, tolerance, man, woman, even racism. These words have become flexible firebrands meant to be filled with meanings opposite their given definitions all to serve political purpose. Make no mistake. Words have become a casualty in the political warfare of our day, but there's a bigger problem. To deconstruct words is to deconstruct logic, rationality, and even man himself. And so Genesis 1 makes it clear that the Christian has no need to blow to and fro like a leaf in the maelstrom of cultural change. The Christian has the Word of God, the very foundation of life, logic, and learning. Fifthly, what's the basis of my values? We're talking ethics, morality here, right? What's the basis of morality? Well, naturalistic evolution, postmodernism, there's no basis. There is no basis for morality. Why should you not steal from, let alone murder, your neighbor? Who makes it wrong? The answer is consensus. Consensus from the community, consensus from society. Well, that's all fine and dandy, but tell that to the Jew living in Poland in 1936. Tell that to the Tutsi living in Rwanda in 1994. If there is no transcendent being, there is no morality, folks. None. And, and therefore, there's no basis to condemn Rwandan genocide or Jewish Holocaust. You're, 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 you have no basis to condemn anything as wrong. Well, Genesis comes and corrects that false notion and tells us there's a creator who is also a judge. And He holds His creation accountable to His standards of morality that He Himself laid down and that God has established His standards in the conscience and heart of every human being on the planet. And they know He's real. According to Romans, they suppress the truth. Pushing down the beach ball of the reality of God that they hate because they don't want to face the fact that they asked answer. For their lives. Sixthly, what does my future hold? This is teleology, the, the study of ends or purposes. What's the purpose of life? What's the purpose of history? Is it going anywhere? What's going on with our ball, our big planet that we live on? Does it even have a purpose? Is there anything happening? And again, evolution would teach there's no ultimate purpose to past or future. We're just here by accident. Meaning basically comes down to, to avoiding mutual annihilation by superpowers. If we can just get through the day alive we're good. And Genesis comes along and brings purpose to man created in the image of God. Brings purpose in the promises that God gives to his people that he has created. And, and, and shows that God is intimately involved in his creation that He's working in and through history. And so we see as we're going to study Genesis, we're going to run smack dab into this this clash of cultural worldviews. Cultures and worldview. We're going to pay attention to it. And listen, pay attention, especially students. Anyone in, in high school, junior high, college age, You listen really close because you're going to face this more than most of us have to. I remember my freshman year of college. I went to my first biology class fresh off the Christian school. And I come into my biology class, never been in a secular classroom since like third grade. And and I come in and the biology teacher starts on day one setting out from the beginning reviling Anything that has to do with Genesis and creation. Making fun of God just in a a, uh, rude, and and literally called me out, and and there was only two of us in the class that were actually, because he made us. He said, does anyone in here even believe this Bible? Oh, I used to be a Christian. I got saved ten times in my life. Yeah, all it's rubbish, and I'm going to prove to you it's rubbish because we're going to study science. And he said, Anybody that believes this junk, stand up. And I stood. And he did his best to embarrass me and the one other brave student that was willing to stand. And that was over 30 years ago. What's going on in the college classrooms of today? I'm telling you, you're going to need to understand these truths. And the problem a lot of young people face growing up in the church is that too many think that the Bible is just a bunch of cute little stories on the flannel graph. There's no connection to each other. There's just no connection to my life. You know, there's just a call, oh, be brave like David was. He was really brave. He faced the giant. Defeat your giants. You know, be courageous like Daniel. He, he survived the lion's den. And be courage like him. Build a boat like Noah, whatever. We pull these lessons out and we give them to our our kids on piecemeal stories. And then we begin to understand and think that the Bible is this disconnected, moralistic piecemeal that teaches me how to be good. And a lot of young people have grown up to feel and believe that somehow that book was really nice for grandma, but it means nothing in this modern world. And I can prove it because my professor, who's got letters after his name... Told me so. There is a battle of worldviews. And listen, this battle is not new. The battle has been raging since the beginning. It's nothing new. We need to understand Genesis. It's important. It's vital because Genesis is foundational to the Bible, which tells you everything you need for life. Everything you need. It answers all the questions for worldview. We're going to be answering these questions. There's no need to fear the classroom. There's no need to fear the professor. There's there's no need to fear the world. There's no need to... But what I want to tell you, brothers and sisters, friends, there's no need to blush at believing the Bible. This is God's Word, and God's Word rings true. No matter what someone who claims they're smart understands. My perspective which may or may not be yours on Genesis, is that that's what's called young earth creationism. But I'm not going to take, I don't take this position to argue or or not to argue that there's no literary or poetic elements to Genesis. It's beautiful poetry involved. Especially in the first chapters of Genesis. And quite obviously the, the first Two chapters tell the story of creation from from two different vantages and in two different ways. We're going to get to that in detail here in in a week or so but let me just say now that the presence of poetry in the book of Genesis does not automatically necessitate the presence of extended eons of time. And the issues involved are, are a lot greater than just how many years have ticked by. Obviously, by itself, it's a matter of indifference how, exactly how much time has elapsed, but it's not a matter of indifference to say that the Scripture is mistaken or that God used blood-soaked eons to create man when the Bible plainly teaches that man was the one who created all the blood-soaked eons. Romans 5.12, therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And so I want to challenge you to be careful not to, just for the sake of keeping peace, a false peace with God-hating geologists, don't give away the biblical answer to the problem of evil. I understand that for some, this is some of these things, and next week as we get more deeper into creation, some of you are going to struggle. I've had multiple people over the years that have come after such a sermon on creation and have struggled. I remember sitting with someone one time, a brilliant person, very smart person and very well-educated and, and you know somewhat new to the faith, and I remember him telling me, like, so are you telling me that everything I've learned since like kindergarten all the teachers and all the professors I've had all these years that they're like wrong. And humbly, I'm not a scientist, but I'm, I'm gonna take the Bible over what the scientist says because he wasn't there. Science, by its very definition, has to be repeatable and observable. If you're gonna use the scientific method, well, can you recreate it all then? <laughs> But I understand it's difficult. I understand that, that we're just everywhere you go today, you know, there, there's this, um, I'm an oddball. Let me just say that, culturally. And I'm okay being the oddball. Because either way, there's faith involved. There's, don't tell me the scientist does not have faith in his evolutionary theory, which is a theory. I'll tell you it's fact. You, that's not good science. And we going give you a lot of resources to study that. And if it's, so if it's challenging to you, I'd encourage you to study it out. Read some things that we may give you to read and check out and understand that, that it's okay to wrestle with it. Just wrestle. I have an easier time having faith in the Word of God than... Man's theories that change every year, because they do. When you start reading even about the way evolution has progressed and the theories of it over the years, it's constantly in flux, constantly changing. And in the end, if you get a scientist that is an, even an, an atheistic evolutionary scientist, he, if they're genuine, they'll admit to you in the end, we really don't know. And much of it is, of course, based on what they see in the age of the universe, right? And there's measurements made. And it's like, well, well, the it's looking like it's just billions and billions because of the way the expanding universe and all of these things and, and the rocks and, and the, the fossils and all these things. And we date them and they look this old. And I'll be honest, that never has troubled me as a Christian. Like, why does the universe look so old then? I I, I mean, to... I don't want to begin to answer that question by pulling God out of the equation. Especially when Genesis is right in front of us and it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And I find it very um, easy to understand that God created the universe whole. He created, when he created Adam, he didn't create him as an infant. right? He created him as a, as a man. And when he created the rocks and the trees and the planets and the stars and the skies, I have no problem believing that they appear old. It's not an issue. God can, I mean, we're talking about God who spoke with his word and created that. the power of God. What can he not do? And so I want to, it suggests to you that the most natural understanding from the scripture of how to answer that question of how old or why does the universe look so old, it comes to this. Again, the universe looks old because the creator made it whole. When he made Adam, Adam wasn't a fetus. He was a man. He had the appearance of a man. And by understanding, this is Al Mohler I'm quoting here now. Dr. Mohler answered this question. He said, by understanding, that would have required time for Adam to get old, but not by the sovereign creative power of God. He put Adam in the garden. The garden was not merely seeds. It was fertile, mature garden. And the Genesis account clearly claims that God creates and makes things whole. Also, Dr. Moeller says, I have to say it looks old so old because it bears testimony to the effects of sin and testimony to the judgment of God. It bears the effects of the catastrophe of the flood and the catastrophes innumerable thereafter. I would suggest to you that the creation looks old because as Paul says in Romans 8 it's groaning. And it and and in its groaning it does look old. Some of you relate to that, don't you? Right? I I'm oh yeah. I feel old and I, and I'm groaning. Well, maybe the mountain does too. Right? In essence, it gives us empirical evidence of the reality of sin. And so we can talk about that over and over again, but I I agree with Dr. moeller when he says, I would suggest to you that in our efforts to be the most faithful to the scriptures and most accountable to the grand narrative of the gospel and understanding of creation in terms of a 24-hour calendar today on a young earth entails far fewer complications, far fewer theological problems, and actually is the most straightforward and uncomplicated reading of the text. Why so? Because if you're going to say even theistic, theistically God used evolution, you've got to account for... How many billions of years of dying when Scripture makes it clear that death came because of a result of sin? So, how important is Genesis to understand and to grasp? Well, despite attempts to discredit Genesis, it is part of God's infallible Word, it's a record of historical accounts edited by Moses, quoted by Jesus. It confronts our idols. Biblical faith does that, doesn't it? It confronts idols everywhere, all throughout the ages. It it provides us a total cosmology of the Christian worldview. It gives us an order and structure to the world. It's literal history. Creation, fall, redemption, recreation, continuum breaks down if we would reject Genesis. But we won't do that. We're going to accept it. And I'm going to have a lot of fun teaching it in these 17 weeks, along with Pastor David. I like, uh, just, man, time is flying. We're getting to the, uh, we haven't even gotten through part of it here. Who wrote Genesis? Let me just say this, Moses. Okay, write that down, Moses. I was going to go through the whole thing about how Moses, it says, there's no internal authorship mentioned. So it doesn't say, like, like some other other books do, like so and so wrote this book, but all over the Old Testament, it's the book of Moses. And then in the end, Jesus quotes that Moses wrote the book. Jesus believed, and that's that's enough for me right there. Right? If Jesus said Moses wrote it, who wrote it? Moses wrote it. No matter what cranky German theologians say. <laughs> what are the key themes of Genesis? The key themes of Genesis: grace, grace. Mercy, grace and mercy, despite sin. Or in the midst of sin, grace and mercy. God's faithfulness to His creation. Again, the, the, the narrative of the, of the story. Creation, it's all good. Create, God created good. Fall, it's all been ruined by sin. Redemption, the foundation of God's redemptive work is found in the book of Genesis. And so let's look at these first two verses very briefly. Point number one. 41 minutes into the sermon, point one. God is the ultimate being. God is the ultimate being. Here's the beginning of the word of God. In the beginning, God. God. His existence isn't defended, it's asserted. Genesis 1.1 separates Christianity from every religion in the world from the bat fr- from the beginning starting off and telling us that god is totally separate and transcended from the creation That god himself was before the beginning psalm 90 verse 2 before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting you are god it tells us of his majesty of his glory J. Edwin Orr said this about God. He's the only infinite, eternal, and unchangeable spirit. The perfect being in whom all things begin and continue and end. He exists independently of matter and and, and sequence of time. He transcends, transcends space and time. He's not limited by spatial consideration. He's everywhere in his fullness continually. He's He's not locked into the present in any way. And so, in the beginning, God. The beginning of what? The beginning of time. It's basically saying before anything else was, there was God. And the word for God is important because the word, his covenant name of Yahweh, is not used here. It's the name Elohim, which is plural. Right off the bat, you see God in three persons, blessed Trinity. God created everything. God was in three persons before the beginning, and the person shared this relationship of love and fellowship. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, before even anything was created, there was God. There was already foreordained the mission of Jesus. Eternal life promised before time began. The mystery of the Gospel foreordained before the ages. The the grace unto us that was given before the world began. All of these are found in the New Testament. The beauty, the glory of God. The majesty of God. God, the God of Genesis, the one true God, is the ultimate being in the beginning, God. And in point two, God created the heavens and the earth. He is the creator of all that exists. Everything that exists originates from God. The word here in Genesis, it employs a, a special um, Hebrew verb for the act of creation, bara. And the subject of that verb is always God in the scripture. No other subject is employed or implied. Man creates, certainly, poetry, music, literature, architectural wonders, but not in the sense of God creating. To create is exclusively an act of God. And, and by using it here in the first and last verse of the creation story, we see it in one one, we're going to see it in two, verse four. The, the, the Moses here is employing something that, that's like a bookend that, that encases the central idea that God is at work and He is creating everything. He creates out of nothing. Ex nihilo is the common term. There's other ancient Near East creation stories that the Israelites would have heard at their time from Egypt, from Mesopotamia, all these things. And they assume that their gods worked with material that already existed. Moses wants the people of God to know he created from nothing. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made, John 1.3. Hebrews 11.3, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. At that point, at the beginning, there's nothing apart from God. What exists apart from God was brought into being by him. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. These words heavens and earth are also very specialized. It's it's a mirrorism, which is a statement where you have two opposites that indicate a totality. We've seen this before in Scripture. It it basically means everything: the heavens and the earth and all of it. So, what is it meaning? It means every speck of dust in the hundred thousand, the million galaxies of the universe. He created, he created every atom, the, the, the submicroscopic solar systems with their whimsically named quarks and leptons, which is the same Greek word used for the widow's mite, by the way. The electrons, the, the neutrinos, little neutral ones, so-called, all of which have no measurable size. The vastness of the universe to the smallest particles of creation, God created the heavens and the earth. The force of Moses' words, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, was not lost on the children of the Exodus. Imagine them wandering through the desert, seeing the night skies of Sinai, the fine veil of the Milky Way above them, and the paths of the comets and the Intermittent meteor showers raining down, singing to them, all of them, each one of an omnipotent creator who cares for his people. He did this and he loves us. Verse 2 says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Interesting verse here that tells us that that which God initially creates isn't in its final form. He creates in order to employ further artistry and design. The earth is created and its without form and, and void. It's In Hebrew, it's tohu v'abohu. You see the poetry being used here by Moses. It's formless. It's, it's empty. It's an empty mass. And the perspective here of verse 2 is is this earth-level perspective, this zoom-in to... He created all of this, and now the, the focus is coming into the earth, and, and He's created it without form and void. It's, it's rhythmic in its beautiful poetry. He created it tohu and, wabohu, and it serves as a common expression for a place that's disordered, that's empty and uninhabitable. The very opposite of what would be the case of the earth and after the six days of creation. And spread over the uninhabitable earth is this darkness, verse 2 says, that emphasizes the em- emptiness. Darkness. That's impenetrable to man, but transparent to God. And God was there. And under the darkness and the covering The earth was the deep, the the primeval ocean. And here God, in His creativity as the Creator God, just as a potter would, would take and fashion a beautiful vessel, takes this lump of clay and He places it on His wheel in order to mold it according to His wish. And the Creator first prepares Himself this raw material and then He begins to sculpt it. He takes this this earthly state of tohu and bohu and out of this chaos forms the artistry and design of the earth. Darkness was over the face of the deep, this, this understanding of waters. The Old Testament, whenever it speaks of the ocean and the seas, it's not a good thing. It's scary. It's dark. It's... It, it, it's, it speaks of, of sin and darkness. There's no sin here, but there's this understanding that there's this darkness over the face of the deep. But then, point three, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And how beautiful is this? The Spirit of God, point three, ensures creation. He ensures creation. When God began to transform the earth into something beautiful and compatible with His great plan, He he starts with the work of His Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. Get this. The Holy Spirit begins every work of creation and recreation. This is His role. This is what He does. This is His power. So you see this contrast between the, 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 the wasteness, the, 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 the void and the darkness in verse 2. This third clause, There's this positive thought of, of there's, out of the darkness, there's the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. And some have tried to translate that word hovering as if He's like blowing like a strong wind. And that's not the biblical way to understand the verb. The, the verb is also used in Scripture like a fluttering of a bird. It means to flutter, to fly, and so think about that. It describes in Deuteronomy 32 an eagle stirring up the nest, fluttering over her young in much the same way. Here's the unformed, lifeless mass of the watery earth under the care of the divine spirit of God, hovering over it, ensuring its future development. Spurgeon said the first divine act in fitting up this planet for the habitation of man was for the Spirit of God to move upon the face of the waters. Till that time, all was formless, empty, out of order, and in confusion. In a word, it was chaos. And to make it into that thing of beauty which the world is at the present moment, even though it's a fallen world, it was needful that the movement of the Spirit of God should take place upon it. How beautiful it's even more beautiful when you understand the word "spirit" in Hebrew also means breath. Ruach. Breath. God's creative breath hovered over the water. And on day one we get to go to the next week. I can't wait, I almost want to go now, but let's wait a week, huh? Day one, his breath would come forth as speech, His word. His powerful word. Psalm 33, 6, I love this, makes this connection. He says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. The spirit is God's word as breath is to speech. That's why it's active and powerful and living and changes and transforms the human heart, the spirit and the word, powerful in creation powerful in the new creation and so what do we make of all of this as we prepare to dive into the rest of Genesis 1 and work ourselves through the six days of creation and the seventh day rest and all of the amazing truths that are ahead of us I want us to consider that on day one the miracle is going to begin here it would begin with God speaking let there be light Light coming into existence. Light that would shine into darkness. And years later, Paul, the apostle, would make the application of this truth to our dark hearts. Where in Second Corinthians 4, 6, he would say, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is salvation. This is beauty. This is glory. That if you're here today and you know God through the person and work of Jesus Christ, it means that the same God who spoke the world into existence has shown that same light into your heart, has put his, Himself into your heart, into your life, into you, and the same Spirit that ensured the creation of the universe can ensure our souls as the new creation in Christ Jesus. As you ponder that today, there's so much weight there. As you ponder that this week, let me just leave you with this. Image bearers of God. In the beginning, God. Image bearers of God. Repent. Repent. If there's sin in your life, turn from your sin, look to him, trust Christ today. Trust his work in your stead, trust his perfect life to be yours, trust his sacrificial death to cover all your sins. Trust his resurrection to be your resurrection. Trust his power that the same power that raised him from the dead, the same power that spoke the world into the universe into existence, the same power is in you will give life to your mortal bodies that energizes you right now to overcome sin and death and Satan and hell in your life by the power of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Repent, believe the Gospel, and rejoice. Have have great joy and worship and enjoy God and enjoy life and enjoy lunch and enjoy family and enjoy marriage and enjoy friendships and enjoy all these great things that God has created. Be fruitful and multiply. Let all the earth be filled with His glory. Because in the beginning, God, and in the end, God will be. Genesis is about God. It's about his acts and his works and creating the universe and in calling a family and using that family for beginning his redemptive plan. Genesis is about grace, his grace on the spot. I can't wait till we get to see his grace even at the very onset of sin entering the world, the grace of God. And May his grace abound to you and to me as we spend these weeks studying this great book of beginnings.